0: Our way to deliver a rational solution in the context of markets that are difficult to forecast, consisting to building the most diversified portfolio. This is my rational answer to the fact that markets are difficult to forecast.
1: You are about to hear my conversation with Yves Chouifati. We talk about his background, his development of the diversification ratio, how they integrate ESG and g principles in his admiration of Harry Markowitz. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Bytes & Insights, the podcast designed to give you insights on how our investors manage client money. My name is Matthew Schnurr and I'm excited to be here today with Eve Shuafati, the founder and CEO of Tobam, a Paris-based asset manager. Tobam is the strategy behind our maximum diversification ETFs and high diversification mutual funds. Eve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm looking forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's get started with how you became interested in investment management.
0: In fact, I became interested first of all in mathematics. I am a mathematician by background. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on I discovered finance. I started working in capital markets on the on an option floor. And then I realized that my way was asset management in fact. I I think uh, I like asset management because uh, the formalism that there is in mathematics finds plenty of applications in the field of asset management.
1: Excellent. Um, And I I guess coming from a pure math math background, uh, formulas in asset management, there is uh, certainly uh, applicable uh, natures for that. Uh, There's also the human element. Uh, How did you deal with sort of the irrationality, call it, of the market that didn't adhere to a formula?
0: You know, being a mathematician, I uh, very often I say that the most important part of mathematics is the definitions. If you think about it, mathematics is simply a set of relationships between a set of definitions. Uh, so, uh, I don't know how you would define irrationality of markets. I'm not sure markets are irrational in fact. I believe in fact markets are quite efficient. Do you know what is the definition of an efficient market? An efficient market is a market you cannot forecast. Right. And I think it's, in fact, quite difficult to forecast. So maybe we can say that markets, in fact, are efficient. Fair enough. So it is the actors, the agents, that may be irrational. But the market itself is efficient. Okay? Okay. Uh, What is the definition of a a rational agent? A rational agent is an agent which is looking for profits. And in fact, the more the agents are looking for profits, the more the market turns efficient. An efficient market is a market you cannot forecast. It's a market in which it's not obvious what is cheap and what is expensive. And why is it not obvious? Because the rational agents tend to buy what is cheap and to make it more expensive. And the rational agents tend to sell what is expensive to make it cheaper. And at the end of the day, price tend to concentrate all the available information so that the next price is difficult to determine. From time to time, you have some irrational agents, Mm -hmm. agents that are not looking for profits. The most emblematic irrational agent are the central banks, because they are not looking for profits. And therefore, they are injecting a lot of inefficiencies in the markets.
1: Very interesting. Um, My guess is, and and correct me if I'm wrong, when you started your career on an options desk, and I know that you've had uh, progressive roles in the uh, more active side or, or that type of thing, that maybe wasn't your view that markets were per- perfectly rational or, or certainly close to rational uh, at that time. Um, I'd love to hear about the progression of that thought if in fact that progression did occur or if that was something that you came to <clears throat> very early. I
0: think that the right way to answer your question about uh, my own uh, little history is to tell you that I have always been approached, that have always been convinced that the most efficient way to approach things is to be rational. Uh, So the question is not whether your colleagues or the rest of the people are rational or not. I think that my way to deal with things is to count on rationality on my side. Uh, And Tobam is about that in fact. The mission statement of Tobam consists into trying to deliver rational professional solutions to long-term investors in the context of efficient markets again what is an efficient market it's a market which is difficult to forecast and our way to deliver a rational solution in the context of markets that are difficult to forecast consists into building the most diversified portfolio this is my rational answer Mm -hmm. to the fact that markets are difficult to forecast at least for me
1: makes sense uh, maybe we can jump into Tobam, the firm itself. Uh, as I said, it's a Paris-based uh, organization. Uh, give me some idea of how large the organization is, um, who the owners are, uh, who your clients are, that type of thing.
0: So Tobam is still a small organization. We are 51 people uh, as of today. About 30% of, 30 of us are based in Paris, 15 in Dublin, 6 in New York, and 1 in Hong Kong. The specificity of Tobam in terms of uh, people of re- organization is the enormous amount of resources we have allocated to resu- to research. As of today, we have 23 people involved in the research effort, which is a large quantity of people, especially if you consider that we have only one strategy at Tobam. Uh, and this strategy consists into maximizing diversification. Because we have this relatively important number of people dedicated to research. I usually say that I'm not absolutely sure we have the best strategy in the world, but I'm totally convinced there is no other asset manager in the world that knows his strategy better than we know ours. So we have a very, very deep understanding of what we do. Today, uh, the company is independent. Uh, The main shareholder of the company uh, is the holding company of the employees. Mm -hmm. And 80% of the shares of the company belongs to the employees. Uh, Today we run about 9 billion of US dollars in terms of AUM. 50% of our clients are public entities. Central banks, sovereign wealth fund, public pensions. Uh, About 20% of our clients are uh, corporate pensions, 20% are fund of fund and multi-managers, and about 5% of our clients are wealth management. Today, a little more than 50% of our clients are in North America, 17% of our clients are in Scandinavia, 17 in Switzerland, and 5% in each of the UK, France, Germany, and Asia.
1: Great, uh, and I know that the uh, foundation of uh, many of the strategies that you refer to is the diversification ratio. Uh, and I'd like to, to have a robust conversation about the diversification ratio. Before we get to that, I'd love to know how you came up with, with the idea of this ratio. Was it more of a Eureka moment? Was it something that you worked on for some time? Or, or how did that process look?
0: The diversification ratio itself took me a bit of time uh, to really uh, fine-tune. The Eureka moment was a different moment. It was when I suddenly realized that everybody in the industry was was talking about diversification, but still diversification was not a well-defined concept. In fact, I realized that in our industry, in the investment management industry, we tend to try to measure everything. We measure volatilities, tracking years, alpha, beta, gamma, theta, Vega, rho, durations. But there is no measurement for diversification. And this is uh, what I think we have discovered. We have discovered the measurement, the way to measure precisely how much diversified a portfolio is. What does it mean? It means that I can look at any portfolio, for instance, your portfolio of Japanese equity or your portfolio of Australian equities, and they will be able to tell you this portfolio has the registration of seven, and that portfolio has the registration of three. And if it is the case, it doesn't mean that this portfolio is more or less volatile, more or less performing, but it will mean that this portfolio is more diversified than that other portfolio is. And if I have this tool that enables me to measure precisely how much diversified the portfolio is, It will mean also that I'll be able to build a portfolio that maximizes the measurement. And this portfolio will be exactly the most diversified portfolio.
1: Great. Uh, So why don't you take us through what the diversification uh, ratio is and and, uh, what the uh, construction of it is?
0: Okay. The best way to introduce a diversification ratio is to try to identify what is it that we know precisely about diversification. Because I'm absolutely sure that the more we think about it, the more we will realize that there is in fact only one thing that we know about diversification. Diversification in fact is this magic by which whenever you will combine 80% of an asset A with 20% of an asset B, the resulting portfolio will be less risky than 80% of the risk of A plus 20% of the risk of B. And this is exactly the only thing we know about diversification It is the fact that as soon as A and B are not the same asset, as soon as the correlation between A and B is different from 1, the risk of 80% of A plus 20% of B will be lower than 80% of the risk of A plus 20% of the risk of B. In fact, diversification is this magic by which whenever you will combine a set of non-fully correlated assets, because if the assets are fully correlated, there is no diversification, the risk of the combination will be lower than the combination of the risks. And this is what gave me the idea to create what I have called the diversification ratio as being precisely the ratio of the weighted average single start volatilities. so 80% of the risk of A, mm-hmm. plus 20% of the risk of B, and so on, if there are other assets in the portfolio, divided by the risk of the portfolio itself. The formula itself is quite easy, quite simple. Mm-hmm. But what matters in this kind of formula, it is not... How complicated the formula it is! it is the consequences of the formula. And we have proven that this formula has at least 47 mathematical characteristics. Some of them are extremely interesting. One of them, it is that we have proven that the portfolio that maximizes this ratio does not exhibit any bias.
1: Interesting. Um- maybe uh, just define a mathematical characteristic uh, for, a for a theorem
0: a theorem a mathematical a theorem. characteristic is the theorem let me tell you and I give you a, another example there is a guy very long time ago very long time ago that invented an object that he called the triangle sure the first guy who drew a, a triangle was probably not aware that the sum of the angles of the triangle would equal 180 degrees right so a mathematical property of the triangle, it is that the sum of its angles equals 180 degrees. The triangle definition itself is subjective. It could have invented something else. Uh, the property of the triangle is objective. In the same way, the definition of the diversification ratio is subjective. The fact that the portfolio that maximizes it is unbiased is objective.
1: And what, um, that sounds very powerful, uh, that, uh, that there's no bias uh, within the diversification ratio.
0: In fact, there is no bias in the portfolio that maximizes the
1: diversification ratio. Fair enough. Uh, sounds very powerful um, to implement that within a portfolio. What does it mean for the characteristics of that portfolio and how it's actually achieved um, within client accounts?
0: So, what are the consequences of diversification on the behavior of the portfolio? The first uh, consequence on the behavior of the portfolio is quite uh, uh, intuitive. Diversification will reduce the risk when compared to a more concentrated portfolio. There is another consequence for diversification. It is that when you are well diversified, you're less exposed to bubbles. Market cap-weighted portfolio tend to concentrate. And towards the end of this trend of concentration, it ends up in a bubble. And usually bubble burst.
1: Of course.
0: A well-diversified portfolio will be much less exposed than the market cap-weighted benchmark to the burst of the bubbles. You know, very often I am a speaker at conferences. Mm -hmm. and And I say that being French there's one thing I can tell you about fashion. If you want to get rich on the dimension of fashion, you need to sell fashion, not sure. to buy it. And if you think about it, the market cap weighted benchmark consists to only allocating to what is already fashionable, to what is already expensive. You are Canadian, you know very well huh, that the market cap weighted benchmark in the equity market in Canada has in the past systematically maximized its allocation to any risk factor, to any risk driver at the worst moment. Whether the risk driver is a single stock, remember Research in Motion, remember some other stocks of the technology and telecom bubble? N-
1: Nortel, obviously, Nortel, stands out. Yeah. yeah.
0: Remember also oil companies. When is it that the market cap-weighted benchmark maximized its allocation to oil companies? when they were the most expensive, at the peak of the price of oil. Mm -hmm. We are very often described as being a smart beta portfolio. Uh, I told you that the most important part of math is definitions. So let us try to imagine what should be the definition of beta. I would say that a good definition of beta is the absence of alpha. What is alpha? Alpha is about being insightful. If you have good insights, your alpha is positive. If you have bad insights, your alpha is negative. You are right now talking to the least insightful portfolio manager in the world. If I was insightful, I would not diversify. Right. But if I am only about diversification and I am absolutely not about insights, maybe I'm not about alpha. And if I am not about alpha, maybe I'm a good candidate to be the beta. And in fact, I believe it is a market-cap-weighted benchmark, which has a negative alpha when compared to a well-diversified portfolio, precisely because it tends to maximize its allocation to any risk driver at the worst moment.
1: Very powerful. You mentioned earlier that you have uh, 23 individuals in research, um, and you've described the diversification ratio and the characteristics, some of the characteristics of that diversification ratio. Out of curiosity, what are they doing now? You've built this diversification ratio. You've sounds like you've studied it extensively. Uh, do you still think that there's uh, unfound characteristics that, uh, that you're looking at, or are you looking to do other things?
0: We have organized our research effort into, towards three directions. The first field of research is theoretical research. It consists into increasing our understanding of the diversification ratio, trying to find other mathematical properties, mm-hmm. either, for the, either for the diversification ratio itself or for the portfolio that maximizes the diversification ratio. The second field of research is implementation research. Huh? How to make sure that we don't have a too large market impact when we t- try to buy a stock or when we sell it. Sure. Yeah? So it's really around uh, implementation, about around market impact, around the estimation of correlations and volatilities, around this kind of implementation uh, topics. The third field of uh, research has been what I call generalization research. Uh, The first uh, portfolios that we were able to manage were single currencies, single country and single time zone equity portfolios. And across the years, because of our successful research, we have been able to extend the field of diversification maximization. First of all, to multiple countries, to multiple time zone, and to multiple currencies. And then we have extended that to fixed income. And three years ago, we have been able, able to extend that to multi asset.
1: Great. Um, you, you mentioned that one of the properties of the diversification ratio was the absence of bias. Um, You still have a third of your people that are looking at properties, mathematical properties. Um, What are some of the other properties that you found that are particularly interesting?
0: Some of those mathematical properties are relatively easy to describe. Uh, uh, One of my favorite and probably most spectacular uh, properties uh, could be approached this way. Imagine you have a Japanese equity portfolio. And imagine I was to ask you how much is your Japanese equity portfolio exposed to a variation of price of oil. If I was to ask you this question, you would not run to your desk and count the numbers of barrels of oil you have in your portfolio. You don't have any single barrel of oil. And still you know that Japanese stocks are very sensitive to variations of price of oil. The only rational way to answer my question is to tell me how much correlated is your portfolio to variations of price of oil. In the same way, if I was to ask you how much is your portfolio exposed to Toyota, the wrong answer would be to tell me that you have 2.5% of Toyota. I don't care how much you have, answer my question. Because if you have 2.5% of Toyota and the rest of your portfolio is not correlated to Toyota, Mm -hmm. you're less exposed to Toyota than if you had only 1% of Toyota, and the rest of your portfolio was very correlated to Toyota. It amazes me that people keep on looking at their weights in their portfolio. I believe that the only accurate way to look at a portfolio is to wear your correlation glasses. It's only the correlation to the different phenomena that will tell you how much exposed you are to those phenomena. The third question I would be I would be asking you would be: what is the minimum idiosyncratic in the minimum idiosyncratic risk portfolio? The minimum idiosyncratic risk portfolio is a portfolio which is the least exposed to any single stock. Okay. but not exposed in terms of weights because who cares about the weights? Exposed in terms of correlation. And we have proven that we are the only portfolio that could be built which is more exposed to the stock it doesn't hold than the stock it holds from a correlation point of view. Why is it that I would not own a stock? I would not own a stock because I'm already too much correlated to it. And we are, in fact... In that way, the minimum idiosyncratic risk portfolio, the source of the equity risk premium.
1: Right. Uh, So it sounds through the discussion, correlations are uh, very prominent. They're they're what you're effectively trying to maximize and the diversification ratio really does um, minimize the correlations um, between them. When you look forward, and um, because you're you're obviously optimizing past data, which is all we have, uh, clearly, uh, you're you would re- be required to make a assumption about correlations holding, um, and that lowly correlated stocks remain lowly correlated. When I think of market corrections or or times like that, correlations seem to go up. Is that something that you found in your research, and how does do your portfolios react in that environment?
0: You're absolutely right. What really drives diversification is correlation, or I should say decorrelation. Yes. Okay. Now, if you dig deeper, you will realize that what really drives the diversification ratio maximization, it's not the correlations or decorrelations themselves. It is their hierarchies. Let me give you an example. Let us consider three U.S. stocks, Bank of America, Bank of New York, and Boeing. You probably know those three stocks. Sure. Since you know I am, I am going to ask you four questions about those three stocks. Okay. First question, please tell me which one of Bank of America, Bank of New York, and Boeing will have the highest performance in 2025?
1: I have no idea.
0: Which one of those three stocks will have the highest volatility in 2025? No idea. What will be the correlation between Bank of America and Bank of New York in 2025? I don't know. Why is it that you don't know that? Because performances are not stable, because volatilities are not stable, and because correlations are not stable. But I told you I would ask you four questions. So has, you still have a chance to give me a right answer. Oh,
1: good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the first question is the following. Please tell me, among those three stocks, Bank of America, Bank of New York, and Boeing, which two stocks are going to be the most correlated stocks?
1: The banks very yeah. likely will be the most yeah, correlated. You are probably
0: right, because yeah. in the last 25 years, There has not been a single year in which Boeing has been more correlated to Bank of America than Bank of New York is. Listen to my sentence again. A portfolio constructed with Boeing and Bank of America is going to be more diversified Mm -hmm. than a portfolio constructed with Bank of New York and Bank of America. And this is probably the only thing you can tell me about 2025. This gives you an idea of how stable the diversification of characteristics of portfolio are at trust time.
1: It makes sense. Um, turning over now to uh, ESG. Uh, You're Paris-based, as we've mentioned. Uh, Europe is clearly a place that um, takes ESG uh, integration um, to probably a further extent than Canada, North America. I'd love to know what you do uh, on ESG within the portfolios um, and uh, in that process.
0: Okay, uh, we have been awarded uh, in 2019 uh, the award of the most sustainable company in the investment industry.
1: Oh, congratulations.
0: By World Finance Sustainability. And it is true that since a long time, we have added a layer of sustainability to our diversification process. Why is that? Because I told you in the beginning of our conversation that 50% of our clients are public entities, i.e., very long-term investors yes and for those very long-term investors it doesn't make sense to seek for an extra one two or three percent return if in exchange for those one two or three percent extra return you would burn the planet right so it is important that we do a good job not only on the dimensions of risk and return but also on the dimension of sustainability of the strategies we implement.
1: And what what are some of the things that you actually do um, at the firm level, uh, whether it be corporately Tobam itself or how you implement the portfolios to reflect those um, those views?
0: So uh, we implement sustainability uh, dimensions at two levels: the way we run our portfolios and the way we run the company. Mm-hmm. So on the way we run uh, the portfolios, we systematically reduce the carbon footprint of the portfolio when compared to the market cap weighted benchmark by at least 20%. We have also we look also, we screen the companies we invest into from an S and G and E point of view, uh, environment, social, and government's point of view. Mm-hmm. We, uh, In order to uh, filter out those companies that do not behave in a sustainable way, from an ESG point of view, we rely on public exclusion lists published by very large institutions across the world. On the way we run our corporation, we realized very early that it would be hypocritical to have an opinion on the way some other companies manage ESG and not on our side to be exemplary on those three dimensions of ESG. So since uh, the beginning of Tobam, we have been very keen to improve the sustainability profile of Tobam. So I'm going to provide you with three examples only of what we do. So on the e-dimension, every single year, we ask an external auditor to compute the carbon footprint of the company, and we systematically offset more than 100% of our carbon, carbon footprint. For instance, last year, we have offset 300 percent of the carbon footprint of the company which makes it that i am amongst the very rare ceos of this planet that can say that every time i take a plane it's good for the planet (laughs) on the s side i'm going to give you again an example on the s side Uh, it was a very strong dilemma for me when we became ready to implement the most diversified portfolio in emerging markets why is that Because whenever you invest in emerging markets, you have the people of emerging markets. Sure. But in a way, you provide also an indirect support to the governments of emerging markets. Mm -hmm. And not all of them are human rights friendly. Sure. And since most of our clients are long-term capitalists, Mm -hmm. they understand very well that it is in their economic and financial interests to encourage the development of human rights. Because more human rights means... Less corruption means more innovation, uh, more uh, competition, etc. So it was a dilemma for me how are we going to launch this fund if inde- indirectly we're supporting governments that are not human rights friendly? So it took me a few weeks to think about it. And one morning I came to the office and I told uh, the guys, I have found a solution. We are going to offset. And we have decided to systematically allocate 7.5% of the revenues generated by the fees in our emerging market fund to human rights NGOs. This made of us the biggest contributor to Amnesty International in France. Wow. And this made us able to fund all the activities of Human Rights Watch in Ukraine. Wonderful. On the G side, the most important uh, concern about the G side, about the governance side, is conflict of interests but if you think about it what we have realized in our capital it is that all of the employees are shareholders mm-hmm. our largest client in the person of calpers is a shareholder and our largest distributor in the person of amundi is the shareholder which means that we have realized almost the perfect alignment of interest
1: wonderful I want to circle back to the point that you that you made on the portfolio implications or implementation uh, and the 20% reduction in carbon compared to the market cap weighted uh, benchmark how do you how do you actually put that within the portfolio and what are the implications of that from a pure investment or diversification perspective
0: uh, in fact, it's now mandatory in many countries for all corporations to publish their carbon footprint. So the data is relatively widely available. Okay. And it's relatively easy nowadays to compute the carbon footprint of a given portfolio. So what we do is uh, simply a maximization under constraints. Mm-hmm. So we maximize the diversification ratio under the constraint of having a carbon footprint, which is less than 80% of the carbon footprint of the of the portfolio. The consequences of those different steps of SRI on the portfolio, of ESG on the portfolio, are very easy to compute. Uh, We do, in parallel, an optimization job without the constraints. And in fact, uh, our process is extremely little sensitive to those constraints. And because we are only about trying to maximize diversification, and if you blacklist one or two starts, you still can build a portfolio which is pretty well diversified so uh, every year we compute uh, the consequences of those steps on our portfolio and in fact it's only a question of a dozen of basis points a year of performance that are in surplus or in subtraction to the theoretical portfolio
1: Uh, I'd like to spend a bit more time getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, maybe we can start with some of your mentors. Who were some of your mentors in, uh, in your field?
0: Um, I was very lucky uh, about six months ago when a journalist told me and told me that Harry Markowitz wanted to meet with me. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Must have been a thrill. Uh, yeah, so I spent two full days uh, in, half, in his office in San Diego. Uh, on a one-on-one basis, discussing about uh, asset management, about math and philosophy. Uh, Very often, I present Tobam as back to Markowitz. Mm -hmm. And I think that among the personalities that really inspired the Tobam adventure, uh, Harry Markowitz is one of the most uh, important contributors to what TOBAM is today.
1: To me, uh, one of the things that's so surprising is Markowitz came out with his uh, foundational paper and I believe it was 1952. Um, and we've gone that far along without having the measurement of the diversification ratio, uh, which is your contribution to, to, the, uh, to the literature. So um, that's exciting. Uh, what do you like to do outside of the office?
0: Outside of the office? Yes. <laughs> I take care of my family. I spend a lot of time gardening, Okay. and so I am taking care of my beehives. Beehives? (laughs) Absolutely. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I travel a lot as well. I read a lot. Great.
1: Well, why don't we segue to uh, how we conclude these podcasts, which is with a series of recommendations. Um, You mentioned that you read a lot. What are some of your favorite books?
0: My favorite book is a book by Jorge Borges called Fictions. Okay. But there is another book that I would recommend. And I really, uh, it was fascinating for me to read this book when a client told me that uh, Tobam reminds him about this book. The title of the book is Flatland in one word. Okay. It's an incredibly exciting book. It's a very short book of about... 90 pages or 100 pages uh, you know i uh, i like to travel a lot an extremely powerful and convenient way to travel consistent to reading mm-hmm. and i can tell you that one of the most exciting travels i ever done was when i read this book
1: and is it a fiction non-fiction
0: it's a semi-fictional
1: book okay interesting well i look forward to reading it um, I'm not sure if you're a podcast listener, but if you are, what are some of your favorite podcasts? Uh,
0: I'm going to give you a semi-answer to to this uh, to the question. Sure. I, I have seen a few conferences by Milton Friedman mm-hmm. that are incredibly uh, out of the box and that look at the world and the different phenomena of human behavior in a very enlightening uh, fashion, so I would recommend to uh, to look at those conferences by Milton Friedman, uh, the Nobel Prize. Of course, I think yeah, it's it's something which is very enriching.
1: Wonderful. You're located in Paris. Uh, occasionally, we uh, we travel over to Paris. It's a beautiful city. What would you say the most underrated uh, part of Paris is? Neighborhood or a place or something like that?
0: Uh, there is a, a place in Paris which is not in all uh, the tourist guides. It is a flea market of Paris in the north of Paris, mm. Porte de Saint-Ouen. And uh, the flea market is a, is a wonderful place in which you can spend a full afternoon or yes. two afternoons or three afternoons or as many afternoons as you want. Uh, you need to make sure that the flea market is open because it's not always open. Uh, it opens uh Mostly on Saturdays and Sundays, but it's a wonderful place and a very, uh, very convenient place to, to to spend a few moments with uh, the people like you that you like.
1: It's a uh, funny story. Um, on my honeymoon, I was actually traveling around southern Italy, uh, and we arrived in Paris in September um, from, uh, Southern Italy and we had dressed like tourists. Uh, so we had shorts and t-shirts on and we came out and it was fall. Uh, so I actually found myself at the flea market buying winter clothes in order to <laughs> enjoy the rest of my time in Paris. So okay. it's funny that you mentioned that. Okay. Uh, and finally, what's your favorite place to eat in Paris? It's just a city of wonderful food. Um, yes, I'd love to know. Uh,
0: you have a plenty of three-star Michelin restaurant in Paris yes. and they will find a list in, uh, on the internet, uh, there are some of them that I like a lot, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but I'm not going to elaborate on those. I'm going to give you a more confidential name, which is Café Sterna, okay. S-T-E-R-N. It's really a, a, an extremely cozy and, and very nice place on a very good location and a very tasteful uh, food as well. So I'm sure you will, uh, you will like it.
1: Wonderful. What part of the city is that in?
0: It's next to the opera. Oh, wonderful. To
1: the Eve, opera. thanks for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and Mackenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects the current expectations or forecasts of future events